You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. You turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the ninth chapter. We're going to read together the first 12 verses of this chapter. You found your place. John 9, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes open? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, it is to your word that we turn, and we ask you to bless our time of study. We pray that you would send your spirit to be an illuminator to us, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to behold in your word wonderful things. We pray that you would give us open and attentive hearts to attend to the things that are here and to think clearly about these things and to have an appreciation for our Savior, what he has done, what he is able to do. And may you grant us understanding in your word today that we might yield to you obedience, give you obedience, and with through those obedient hearts that you would be glorified in the midst of your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, I'm going to start with a little bit of a trivia question this morning, and this is not a sports trivia. That would be appropriate for today, but that's not the type of trivia I'm going to, I'm going to give to you. Um, Brian Atmore, actually, before I get to the trivia question, uh, my friend Chris, who was here from Saskatchewan, he reminded me of something that Brian Atmore used to say. There are two things that it is nearly impossible for a man to do. One is to lean forward and kiss a woman who is leaning away from you. Second is to preach on the day of a major sporting event. And that is today because our minds are occupied by other things and, our, and not only the mind of the speaker, but the mind of the hearer. And so my prayer is just that God would give us clarity today as we, as we um, study the word together. Here's the trivia question, not a sports question. Can you think of other instances in Scripture where Jesus healed people who were blind? Can you think of other instances in Scripture where Jesus healed people who were blind? Bring them all back to your mind. I'll make it a little easier for you by reminding you that uh, the, the account that we just read, the man born blind, is not repeated anywhere else in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So you're not going to get him confused with anybody else. I'll make it even a little bit easier for you to remind you that nobody else is healed of blindness in John's Gospel. So that limits the search of your memory to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Can you think, or how many other instances of men who were blind that were healed by Jesus can you think of? Now, if somebody had walked up and asked me that question a week ago, I probably would have been able to call to my mind two instances. First, Bartimaeus. Do you remember Bartimaeus? And I would recall him because years ago, 
uh, our friend Brian Atmore came here and he preached a sermon on blind Bartimaeus. And I remember that. So I always think when I think of blind people, I think Bartimaeus. The second instance that I would have been able to recall to my mind is the instance of the man who was healed, it seems, in two stages. He was healed a little bit and he was asked, can you see? And he was able to see men, but like trees walking around. And then Jesus touched him again and healed him. And then he was able to see clearly. Do you remember that? Those are the two that I would have been able to call to my mind. But there are others. In fact, as I studied the subject of blindness and people who are healed, and this last week I went through and studied all of the other instances of men healed by blindness in the New Testament. As I did that, I was struck at how much the Bible has to say about the blind seeing and these other men who are healed. It is actually a very significant miracle. The giving of sight to the blind is a significant miracle. And what I'm going to share with you this morning started out just to be an introduction, you know, something that I do to kind of catch your attention. And then as I studied, I discovered more and more, and I thought, okay, this is going to be really an introduction to next week's sermon. We're not actually going to get into John 9 just yet this morning. We need to be patient. And I know that you're, some of you are really excited to see this poor man in John 9 healed of his blindness because it's been four weeks since we started this chapter. But we're going to leave him blind for one more week because I want to set the Old Testament context for this. And I want you to, when, next week when we look at this passage, I want you to be able to see what the disciples saw through Jewish eyes and to understand what they expected in a Messiah and what this miracle should have communicated to Jews who were standing there and watching this miracle unfold. And it's quite fascinating what is contained in the Old Testament and what is contained in the New Testament. So today we're going to do two things. We're going to kind of do a survey of some Old Testament teaching on the subject of blindness and the work of the Messiah and giving sight to the blind. And then we're going to go and we're going to look at the other instances of men healed of blindness in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we're going to look at all of them, and we're going to close with that that one instance which is kind of peculiar, where Jesus heals the man in two stages. That's going to be the last one that we're going to look at. All right, so we're going to start into the Old Testament. For the sake of simplicity, we could divide the miracles that Jesus does into two groups or two categories. And this might be overly simplistic, but this suits our purposes for this morning. Jesus did miracles on nature, and Jesus did miracles on people. Now think of them in those two categories, on nature. On nature, you would think, for instance, of multiplying bread and fish, walking on water, turning water into wine, uh, finding a coin in a fish's mouth, the two large catches of fish that Jesus did. Those would be miracles that are not necessarily on people. They were done before people, but not on people. It didn't change anybody's physical capacities. Then there were miracles on people. You might think of healing the leopards, lepers, not leopards, lepers, just for clarity, Jesus never healed any animals that we know of, not leopards, but lepers, the healing of the lepers, and there was one instance where he healed ten lepers at one time, and healing the lame, uh, giving sight to the blind, uh, exorcisms, exorcisms were miracles that were done on people, and by the way, exorcisms are miracles, remember that. Exorcisms are miracles. Exorcisms are not things that everybody who has the Spirit of God does. Exorcisms were miracles done by Jesus and the apostles to authenticate their ministry. They're not everything that everybody does. You don't have to put a white collar on, all of a sudden you have the power to do an exorcism, no matter what they show in the movies. They were miracles. So exorcisms would fall into that category. Now let me ask you this. Do you know what type of miracle it is that tops the list in terms of the number of recorded instances of that kind of healing in the New Testament? Blindness. See, I wouldn't have guessed that. If you'd asked me what type of miracles recorded on what type of infirmity more often than any other, I would have said probably lepers or the lame. Those are the two that I would have guessed. But you know how many lame people are recorded? How many instances of the lame being healed or recorded in the New Testament? 
Only two. One of them in John 5, and the other one, the man that was let down through the ceiling, only two. How many instances of leprosy being healed? Two. One of them was, one instance was the ten people who were healed. But in terms of the type of ailment that was healed, and the number of instances of that particular singular ailment being healed, do you know how many blind people were healed? How many instances of the blind being healed in the New Testament? Five. Five different times. Now, obviously, not all of the miracles that Jesus performed are recorded for us in the New Testament. Not all of them. Many other signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, John says at the end of John, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. He did all kinds of other signs, um, most of which are not recorded. I would think that Jesus did hundreds or dozens and dozens of signs, but the, some of them are recorded for us. But in terms of the ones that are recorded, do you know what ailment is recorded most having been healed in the New Testament? It is blindness with five instances of blindness being healed in the New Testament. So this is a, this is a, a, a significant miracle. It certainly caught the attention of the apostles and the disciples who were writing the New Testament. So we're going to look at the other four in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to look at those other four today and here in John 9. So let's go back into the Old Testament. The Old Testament gave certain expectations for the Messiah. And one of the things that we learn from the Old Testament is that the giving of sight to the blind was a power or a, a sign that was uniquely associated with God. A couple of weeks ago we read Exodus chapter 4 verse 11 where it says, The Lord said to him, that is Moses, who has made man's mouth? Or what makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I the Lord? Do you remember that, that verse? Who is it that makes men blind? It's not an accident. It's not a genetic mistake. It's the sovereign hand of God that does that. It is God who does that. He makes blind people just like he makes seeing people. So the, the ability to give sight to the blind, to make men blind, and to make men see, was a power or an ability that was associated with God. We read the verse this morning, or Thomas did, in the Scripture reading from Psalm 146, verse 8. Did you catch it? The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. So who is it that opens the eyes of the blind? It is the Lord. One of the unique things about the Old Testament is that it taught that this was a power or, or something that was unique to the Lord. This was the Lord's ability. See, it's not just the number of times that Jesus healed blind men in the New Testament that is significant. What else is significant about the New Testament record of people being healed of blindness? In fact, the whole Bible's record of people being healed by blindness. Do you know who the only person to ever heal somebody of blindness recorded in Scripture is? It's only Jesus. Nobody else did that. Now, miracles happened in kind of three general time periods. There was Moses and Joshua. There was Elijah and Elisha, and there was Jesus and the apostles. There are exceptions to that, miracles outside of those time periods, but most miracles happened in those clusters. Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, and Jesus and the apostles. Moses and Joshua did miracles, didn't they? There were all kinds of miracles associated with Moses and bringing the children out of the land of Egypt and the, the giving of the revelation and the covenant through Moses, but it's never recorded that Moses ever healed somebody who was blind. And Elijah and Elisha, they did lots of miracles. Elijah did all kinds of miracles, lots of different types of miracles. Even was responsible for raising somebody from the dead. And Elisha did almost twice as many miracles as Elijah did. But do you know what miracle neither of them ever did? As at least recorded in Scripture? Neither of them ever gave sight to a blind man. And fast forward past the time of Jesus into the time of the apostles, Peter and Paul, their miracles are recorded in the book of Acts. But you know one thing that the Bible never says that Peter and Paul did? Give sight to a blind man. Why is Jesus uniquely the only one that is recorded in the Scripture? Now maybe those other men did that. But it's not recorded in the Scripture. Why is Jesus uniquely the only one ever said to give sight to the blind? You know why? Because that power and ability was associated with God and God alone. 
So it would be fitting that the only person that we would ever see doing that is whom? Is the God-man. Right? It's the God-man. He is the one who has the ab- that ability to do that, and He is the one who did it. Not only that, but do you remember where this, me- the, where this miracle in John 9, do you know where it occurs? Right after what? The temple? And what was the last thing Jesus did in the temple? What had He just told the Jews? Before Abraham was born, I am. He had just declared Himself to be God. They picked up stones to stone Him. He walked out of the temple, and what is the first thing He does? comes across a blind man, and almost as if to say, I will prove to you that I am God. I will do something that only God is said to do. And He did a unique miracle demonstrating His deity right there outside the temple. Listen, the blind man who is healed in John 9, he seems to get it. And you know what the evidence that he seems to get it is? At the end of the chapter, what does he do when Jesus reveals Himself as the Son of Man? The blind man, the formerly blind man, who he now sees, he worships Him. Worships Him. He understood exactly what that meant. He understood Jesus to be God. That was a horrible act of idolatry. Or Jesus is God. One of those two. And that man who was formerly blind worshipped Him because he understood it is this man who is God who has given me the sight and the ability to see. Alright, so blindness or the giving of sight to the blind in the Old Testament was something uniquely associated with God. Further, it was something uniquely associated with the coming Messiah. The coming Messiah. There are passages in the prophets that speak of this being part of the work of the Messiah when He would come. And this was the Jewish expectation. Isaiah chapter 9. I'm just going to read to you a few verses here from Isaiah 9. In fact, all of these verses that I'm going to read to you are from the book of Isaiah. The first one is in a messianic context. Isaiah 9 also has that familiar verse, verse 6, where it says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That was the promise of the coming Messiah. Earlier in that chapter, chapter four verses earlier actually, chapter 9 verse 2, says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine on them. Matthew 9 verse 2 was quoted by, sorry, Isaiah 9 verse 2 was quoted by Matthew in Matthew 14 verse 4 when Jesus began his earthly ministry. So when Jesus came out of the wilderness, began his earthly ministry, I, Matthew quotes Isaiah, a bright light has come and it is shining among a people who live in darkness. And that was the expectation that the arrival of the Messiah would be a time of great light. People who were in darkness would see. Now consider also Isaiah 29, verse 18. On that day the deaf will hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 32, 3. Then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded, and the ears of those who hear will listen. Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf deaf will be unstopped. So there was a sign or an ability that was uniquely associated with the Messiah, and the Jews expected that when the Messiah came, and He came to inaugurate His kingdom, to reverse the effects of the call and to bring in this reign and rule of righteousness, when the Messiah did that, one of the things that He would do would be to heal the sick and to reverse the effects of the fall, to make the blind see, the deaf to hear, exorcisms, all of those signs would be uniquely associated with the Messiah. That was so much in the Jewish expectation of their coming Messiah that when John the Baptist sent um, messengers to Jesus to inquire of Him, are you the one or should we expect someone else? Do you remember Jesus' answer to him? Go back and tell John what you see. The blind see. The deaf hear. The lame walk. The poor have the Gospel preached to them. One of the signs of Jesus being the Messiah was what? That the blind see. And Jesus pointed to that as evidence that He was indeed the Messiah and not just a forerunner of another coming Messiah. He told John's messengers, go back and tell them what you see. That the blind see. And the fact that the blind see is proof that I am the Messiah. So it was a sign that was uniquely associated with the Messiah. 
So when we read words like John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world, and John 9, verse 5, where Jesus says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. When we read that, we need to read that in terms of how a Jew would understand that. That this was a claim to to be the Messiah, the one who is the light, who would come in and give sight to the blind and open blind eyes and be a light to people who walk in spiritual and moral darkness. Furthermore, there's something else significant about this miracle of Jesus giving men who are blind sight. And that is what it indicates about Him. Just as the miracle of multiplying bread and fish was intended to show that He is the bread of life, and just as the raising of Lazarus was intended to demonstrate that He is the resurrection and the life, so the giving of sight to the blind is intended to demonstrate that He is the light of the world and that He is the coming Messiah. There's something about giving sight to the blind that is uniquely indicative of what the Messiah was going to do. What is it that Christ does for sinners? He gives them sight, right? In fact, it is not until you are saved and you have sight, spiritual sight, that you understand just how blind you were. Because all of us, as sinners in an unredeemed state, are blind. We are blind to the glory of God. We are blind to the truth of Christ. We are blind to the truth of God's Word. We are unable to see. We walk in moral darkness, spiritual darkness, ethical darkness, religious darkness, mental and intellectual darkness. We walk in every form of darkness. In fact, we live in a kingdom of darkness ruled over by the prince of darkness. That's how dark we are. And we are blind in it. And we are blind to our own blindness. We're so blind. That's us in our unredeemed state. And then what does the Messiah do? He opens eyes and translates us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son, the kingdom of light. And then we become, as Ephesians 5 says, children of light, and we walk in the light, and we love the light, and we rejoice in the light, and we know the one who is the light. We have gone from darkness to light. That is one of the most significant changes that has taken place in redemption, is going from darkness, the kingdom of darkness, to the kingdom of light. That is what the Messiah does for us. And there is no miracle recorded in all of Scripture that better indicates that reality than this, the giving of sight to the blind. Because the giving of sight to the blind is exactly what He does for us in a spiritual sense. He opens our eyes to see so that we might behold the light, that we might see the light and come to the light. And He changes our hearts and nature so that we love the light and we become children of light. That's what regeneration is. So that is the Old Testament background. Now let's get into the New Testament occurrences of other people born, sorry, not born blind, other people who were blind who were healed. And I make that distinction, while I'm making that distinction, turn back to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. I make that distinction of born blind and blind because certainly Jesus would have healed people who were not necessarily born blind but had gone blind at some point during their lives. But you remember the thing that is unique about the man in John 9? He is the only man in all of the New Testament who is said to have been born blind. That's specifically the detail that John wants us to remember in John 9. The other men were blind. Maybe they were born blind. But his birth as a blind man is one of the central elements of John chapter 9. Oh, you know what? I, Sorry. I forget these things and then I think, oh, I should have remembered those things and then I think I'm going to remind you that I forgot something, but I should have just gone on. There are other people in the New Testament, other instances where we heal, hear of Jesus uh, healing blind people and they're just sort of generically reported to us. Like Matthew, I'm going to read to you two passages before we look at Matthew 9. Matthew 15, And the large crowds came to him, bringing with him those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled, and as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, they glorified the God of Israel. That's just a general reference to remind us that not everything recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's not all of the instances of Jesus healing blind men. He healed many others. Matthew 21, verse 14, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now let's look at the other account, Matthew chapter 9. 
beginning at verse 27. Beginning at verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind man came, men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all the land. You notice that in contrast to John 9, in comparison to John 9, that's just a little short paragraph, right, of two men who are healed. Compare that to all the detail that we get in John 9 of that man who was born blind and all the reaction to that. This is just Matthew's way of just going through a series of miracles. In fact, all of chapter 9 really is a series of miracles. Um, the last part of John 9, beginning in verse 18, he was coming... He was saying these things, um, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died, come and lay your hands on her, and she will live. And Jesus got up and began to follow him. And then a woman, verse 20, who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years, came up behind him and touched his cloak. Verse 23, then Jesus came to the official's house and saw the flute players in the crowd in noisy disorder, and he said, leave, for the girl's not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, but when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. So there's a resurrection. And then it's the two men who were born blind. So this is just one in a series of these miracles. And here's Matthew's point. Jesus did all kinds of miracles, and this day particularly was filled with just this miraculous occurrence after miraculous occurrence to demonstrate that he was the Messiah. And that's Matthew's point, right? This is the king of Israel. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah. And to show you that that's who he is, he heals these two blind men in Capernaum. Notice that he heals these blind men by the touch. He laid his hands on them, verse 29 and said, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. And then Jesus warned them, Don't tell anybody. And they went out and they told everybody. Alright, now turn over to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Beginning at verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to Jesus and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. Now there's sort of a, a triple problem with this one. This one is blind, he is mute, and he is demon-possessed. Now, to heal any one of those three things is a miracle. Healing the blind is miraculous, healing a mute man is miraculous, and casting out a demon was a miraculous act. It's called a sign and a wonder. It's called a miracle in Scripture. Reminder again, that when Jesus healed this man, of all three of these things, any one of them would have considered miraculous. Here he does all three of those miracles on one man at one instant. He healed him instantly. Look at verse 23. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? When the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now remember, this is the miracle that, that sort of precipitates that uh, the discussion about the, the unpardonable sin and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's this miracle. People, when they see him heal a man who is demon-possessed and heal a man who is mute and heal a man who is blind, the people begin to catch on and say, this must be the son of David. The Pharisees don't want anything of that. They don't want the crowds coming to the right conclusion about Jesus. So then they say, no, no, what he has done, and the Pharisees knew that he was doing this by the power of the Holy Spirit. They said, what he has done, he has done by the power of the prince of darkness, Satan, Beelzebub himself. And Jesus said, that you cannot be forgiven of. You have taken something that they knew to be the work of the Spirit of God. They had taken that and attributed it to Satan and said, he did this. This is a demonstration of his allegiance with Satan. So this blind man sort of begins that whole discussion on the unpardonable sin. Now turn over to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And why I'm doing this, going through all of these, is because I want you to sort of be able to compare and contrast in your mind these other instances so that when next week we finally get to see the man in John 9 healed, 
you'll have sort of a background to be able to sort of see how it is unique to these other miracles. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 46. Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. Now this this miracle here, we could have gone to Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 20 and looked at the same instance. But what's unique in Mark is that Mark gives us more detail than Matthew or Luke. This is the only blind man healed that is recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's Bartimaeus. If you read the same thing in Luke chapter 18, Matthew chapter 20, it's the same account. In Matthew and Luke, we have other details that Mark doesn't give us. In Mark, we have some details that Matthew and Luke don't give us. One of the details that we get in Mark's gospel that Matthew and Luke do not give us is the name of the blind man, Bartimaeus. For whatever reason, Mark remembered that, or Peter, who was Mark's source, remembered that. And he sort of signals that out, and he focuses in on the conversation that takes place between Jesus and Bartimaeus. Verse 24, when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up, he is calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Now Mark, here's what's unique about Mark's recollection of this. Not only does Mark name Bartimaeus, who's the only one named, we don't even get the name of John 9, right? The man, the blind man that we know more about than any other blind man in all of Scripture who was healed, we don't even get his name. But we get Bartimaeus' name. Here's something else that's unique about Mark's accounting of this. If you just read Mark's account, it sounds like it was just Bartimaeus. But you read Matthew and Luke, and you find out it was two men. Bartimaeus was just one of two men. Mark kind of zeroes in on the element of Bartimaeus. He singles out Bartimaeus among these two men. And from Mark's account, it sounds like Jesus just spoke. I think it's Matthew who mentions that Jesus laid his hands on them and touched them when he said this. So there were two men who were healed this day. One of them, his name was Bartimaeus. Now turn back to Mark chapter 8. Mark 8. We're going back not only in the text of Mark's gospel for this fourth one, but we're also going back chronologically. Bartimaeus takes place just a little bit before the final week of the Lord Jesus' life. Bartimaeus is the last blind man that is recorded that Jesus healed. And I'm saving the one in Mark 8 for last because this is sort of the perplexing, unique miracle of Mark's gospel, at least in terms of people who are healed of blindness. And look how it is unique. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on them... By the way, that is similar to John 9, right? In both this instance and John 9, it is spittle that is used in the miracle. In the other ones, touching and speaking, but this one has a detail in common with the man born blind in John 9 that Jesus uses spittle. Laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Now that's a bit unique. Why is that one unique? Because that is the only miracle, all miracles taken into consideration in all four Gospels. That is the only miracle that takes place in two stages. You never read of Jesus healing a paralytic and having the Gospel writer says he got up and he sort of stumbled out of there with him dragging one leg behind him, limping as it were, trying to regain his, 
And then Jesus touched him again and the paralytic was healed completely. You never hear somebody being healed of leprosy in two stages or being healed of exorcisms in two stages. In all of the other counts of the miracles of Jesus, here's how it went. He simply willed it or set it or touched them and it was done. Instant healing, complete healing, total healing without any side effects and without any of the disease or the infirmity following them into the healing. So this is a unique miracle, even not only amongst those who are blind and healed, but amongst all of the miracles of Jesus and the apostles. This one is unique. So what is going on here? Some people have tried to explain it and say, well, this is probably due to a lack of the man's faith. The man didn't have enough faith to be healed the first time, so it, it kind of took, and he kind of was healed, and then he could sort of see. But then when he started to see men walking about like trees, he got another sort of burst of faith, and he believed a little bit more. And then when Jesus healed, it could take because his faith had grown after the first stage, right? Some people suggested that. Some people suggested that it was a lack of power on Jesus' part. Didn't take the first time, tried it the second time, then he was able to do it the second time. Maybe because this was a bit more of a difficult miracle for whatever reason. Some people have suggested, this goes really well in word, faith, charismatic circles. Some people have suggested that what's really going on here is proof that not even Jesus healed everybody brought to him the first time. Right? There's a reason why people come to Benny Hinn concerts and shows in wheelchairs and then leave in wheelchairs and they would say, not even Jesus healed everybody the first time around. Sometimes, some guys, like the guy in Mark 9, took more than one time for Jesus to heal them. Look, it's, it's none of those things going on. There is a very significant reason why this miracle takes place in two stages, and I'm going to show you in just a moment why that is. The reason is seen in the context, the whole context of Mark 6, 7, and 8. You said, Jim, you're not going to, you're not going to go through all three of those chapters, are you? The Super Bowl is not till 3.30, so we are going to go through all three of those chapters. Actually, we're not. We're just going to go through Mark chapter 8. And I want you to see the context. Listen, if we were studying the Gospel of Mark, like we're studying the Gospel of John, by the time we got to this miracle, all I would do is have to point out a couple of things and you would say, oh, I see what's going on. I see what's going on in Mark 8. All right, Mark 8 begins with a miracle. It's the second of a certain type of miracle, a miracle on nature in verse 1, in those days. And by the way, this pattern or this sort of theme that I'm going to show to you is woven throughout Mark's Gospel and it begins back in chapter 6. There's a very distinct pattern in Mark's Gospel that begins in the middle of chapter 6, a pattern of confrontations with the Jews and miracles and teachings and, and a theme that's woven there. We're just going to pick it up in chapter 8 because that's really all that we need to do. So, in those days there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion on the people because they have remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. So you know what Jesus did. This is the feeding of the 4,000. This is the second of those kind of miracles. The feeding of the 5,000 and the subsequent walking on water. Those two miracles are recorded in John's Gospel, in John chapter 6. And we looked at those two miracles. This now is a little while later. This is another feeding of the multitude where Jesus fed the 4,000 and they picked up uh, seven loaves of, of uh, fish. Or seven loaves, uh, sorry, not loaves, seven baskets of bread that was left over from the feeding of these 4,000. So they got done with that, verse 9, and about 4,000 were there, and he sent them away and immediately entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. So after the feeding of the 4,000, he is confronted by the Pharisees who want to strike up an argument. And then they demand a sign from him. Show us a sign. Show us a sign. Now, what had Jesus just done for everybody to see? He had just done a sign. Jesus sighed deeply, and he didn't do a sign. Could he have done a sign? He could have done a sign, but he didn't. Why didn't he? Because he knew that the heart of the Pharisees' problem was not a lack of what? Evidence. It was a 
Love for darkness. I know, we've gone through this so many times, you're sick of it now. The source and reason for unbelief is never a lack of evidence. And the Pharisees wanted a sign. And had Jesus done a sign, they would have rejected Him. They would have hated Him. They would have found some way to explain it away, like they did with the man who was born, or the man who was blind, mute, and demon-possessed. When He healed them, what did they say? He does this by the power of Beelzebub. They always had a reason to reject His signs. And now they're asking Him for another one, and Jesus does not play their game. He refuses to do it. He's not going to take the signs of His kingdom and perform them like parlor tricks before a bunch of people that He knows will reject Him because their heart is hard. And they are blind, and they hate the light, and they love their darkness, and they love their sin. And they were going to reject Him anyway. And Jesus doesn't even play their games. So He leaves after the confrontation with the Pharisees. Look at verse 14. And they had gotten to take, and they had forgotten to take bread. So they're in the boat, traveling across the lake. They had forgotten to take bread. And did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. Now that's the problem if you want lunch, right? You got one loaf, twelve men. And how far does one little loaf of bread, and we're not talking loaves like you buy at Costco, the big things. One little loaf of bread, how far does that go among twelve hungry men? Grown men. Not going to go very far. So they begin to discuss this. They only have one loaf of bread in the boat with them. Now Jesus takes their their observance of the loaf of bread, and this is a perfect opportunity to give them an object lesson and to teach them. Now what are the last two things that the disciples have encountered? Feeding of 4,000, the multiplying of bread, and the unbelief of the Pharisees in light of that multiplying of bread. So Jesus uses this as an opportunity to tell them, don't be like the Pharisees. Verse 14 or 15. And he was giving orders to them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What is the leaven of the Pharisees? It was the unbelief in the face of what they had just seen. The Pharisees had seen this. The Jews had seen him multiply bread and fish. And in spite of all the evidence of the signs, their hearts remained hardened in unbelief. And Jesus is saying they have seen the evidence, and yet they are in unbelief. Now, the disciples, having just seen the multiplying of the bread, and now they're discussing in the boat about their lack of what? Bread. He just fed with what? Seven loaves, 4,000 people. Do you think feeding 12 men with a loaf of bread is a problem? They shouldn't have even been discussing the absence of bread. Instead, they should have said, what do we need bread for? We've got the bread of life. He just fed 4,000 with seven loaves. We could throw half of this loaf overboard. He could still feed all 12 of us with half a loaf of bread. And he could probably create fish out of out of thin air, and he could scoop up some water and turn it to wine, and we could have a full meal right here in the in the boat. That's what they should have said to themselves. But instead, they're talking about the lack of bread. What is that evidence of? It's evidence of an unbelieving heart. They did not see the significance of the miracle, the feeding of the 4,000. They didn't catch the significance of that. That he is this individual who can multiply bread at will. They should have seen it, but they didn't see it. So what does Jesus do? Verse 17, Jesus was aware of this and said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Now watch the series of questions. Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hard heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They answered him, 12. And I think that's how they answered him too. Right? You didn't catch that, did you? What's, what's his point? You didn't understand the significance of this. Let, let's do a bit of review. When I fed the first time, how many baskets? 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? Seven. The short answer is right. 
Peter knows better than to start talking now. Twelve, seven. Should they have understood the significance of it? And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? Now after the object lesson, they were discussing that they had no bread. It's interesting, Jesus, that you would bring up the issue of leaven because that's what they put in bread. And who left the cooler on the beach when we got in the boat? Whose fault is it that we have no bread in the boat? And Jesus rebukes them. Do you remember what I did? How many when I did this? How many when I did this? You guys do not yet see. You do not yet understand. Now what would we say of the disciples' spiritual sight? We would say of them, did they see and understand? They did. But did they understand really clearly who Jesus was? No, these... These were men sitting in this boat, some of whom had said, this is the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. This is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah. They saw, but did they see clearly? No. So they get out of the boat, and they came to Bethsaida, and they brought him a blind man to Jesus, implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, verse 23, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? That's a familiar sounding question, right? Does that sound familiar? Do you see anything? Who had he just asked that? Moments earlier, he had asked that same question to the disciples in the boat. Do you not yet see? Do you not yet understand? They saw, but they didn't see clearly. Now the blind man is right in front of Jesus. He heals him and says, do you see anything? What does the blind man say? I see men. I see, but I don't see what? I don't see clearly. I don't see clearly. This is I see men walking around like trees. Verse 24, And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes. And he, that is the blind man, he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. Two stages of sight. Do you get Mark's point? What did Jesus just said in the boat? Don't you see? And they would have said, well, we see, but apparently we don't see clear enough. So he gets out of the boat, finds the blind man, does a miracle, puts his hands on him. Do you see anything? Now, if you were a disciple and you had any kind of insight, you would have been thinking to yourself, we were just asked that question. Do you see? And then when the man said, I see men, but they're like trees. I see, but I don't see clearly. The disciples could have been thinking, yeah, I see. That's like us. It's like me. I see, but I don't see clearly. But then when the man looked intently at Jesus... He saw clearly. What is the point of the two-stage miracle, the healing of the man that was blind? What's the point of that? It was a living parable of the disciples. Did they see? This is the man of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. They did see that, but did they really understand it clearly? They didn't. They didn't. And their sight in the boat in the presence of those miracles was just like the sight of this man after the first stage of healing. This man is an example of the disciples of what Jesus was doing in them and what he would do. Some miracles were done for the benefit of unbelievers who were standing around seeing it. Some miracles were done for the benefit of the disciples themselves who saw the miracle and learned a lesson from it. Every miracle has a lesson. Every miracle has a lesson. Something we learn about Christ, something we learn about ourselves, something we learn about God and His nature, something we learn about God's redemptive plan. Every miracle has a lesson. And what is the miracle lesson of this miracle? They saw, they didn't see clearly. Now, did they eventually see clearly? Yeah, and we don't have to look far in Mark to get it. Verse 27, Jesus went out along with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi on the way. He questioned His disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? 
They told him, saying, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning, whom do you say that I am? Now the question is, what do you see and what do you understand clearly? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Did Peter get it now? Peter got it now. Now Peter gets it clear. And then in John, in Mark chapter 9, you know what the very next incident is? He takes Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration and they see Jesus in a preview of His kingdom glory transfigured right in front of their eyes. And they hear the Father say from heaven, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Did they have clear sight then? Yeah, they did. So there is a point behind Mark 8. It's not lack of faith. It's not lack of power on Jesus' part. It's not proof that Jesus couldn't heal everybody the first time through the crusade. This is not a word faith or a prosperity gospel teacher verse. There's a point to this miracle and the point is this. Though they saw Jesus, the disciples, though they saw Him and they understood some things, they didn't understand Him clearly, but He was going to give that clarity of sight to those disciples just like He gave the clarity of sight to the man in Mark 8. That's the point of that miracle. So those are the four other miracles where men are healed from blindness. Two men who come up to Him crying out, Son of David, have mercy on us. The blind, mute, demon-possessed man who was healed and the people said, Surely this can't be the son of David, can he? And then this man in Mark 8 who was healed in the two stages. And then the man in Mark 10, who the two men, one of whom is Bartimaeus, who were healed of their blindness as well. Those are the four. And we'll look at the five, Lord willing, the fifth, Lord willing, next week. And we will dive into John 9 and get into the details of the healing of that man. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for the time that you have given us in your word. It is always a joy to be refreshed in it, to learn new things, and to see the exciting things that you have put in the pages of Scripture for our discovery. We thank You that You, by Your grace, have opened our eyes. We were spiritually blind sinners, blind to the truth of Your glory and Your grace and Your person, Your nature and Your character, and all that You had done for us in Your Son. And not only were we blind, but we were in rebellion. We thank You for changing our hearts, changing our natures, opening our eyes, that we might behold the face and the glory of Christ in the pages of Scripture. Thank You for that salvation which You have made ours and all that has been done to make that possible. As Your people, we rejoice. We are glad for what we see and understand that we know that we are being transformed from image of Christ to image of Christ, from glory to glory. And we thank You that You are changing us into the image of Your dear Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.